The following Dharma talk was presented at Common Ground Meditation Center in Minneapolis, Minnesota, as part of the weekly Dharma series. The speaker is Mark Nunberg, guiding teacher at Common Ground. Welcome, everyone. Special welcome to the new folks tonight. Once a quarter at the center, we do something that's called uh, the Refuges and Precepts. We did that this morning for the people who are here for the morning program. You might not know, but uh, the talks, the topics are given, covered first on Sunday morning, then Sunday night, then Wednesday evening. So this program is offered three times a week. And uh, this morning, I've been connecting what we've been talking about the last couple of weeks, mindfulness of mind with this tradition in Buddhism of taking refuge in the three refuges and undertaking the five mindfulness trainings or the five precepts for lay people. It's a nice tradition. <clears throat> we, don't do, we don't have too many formal Buddhist rituals here at Common Ground, even though you know, it's a community dedicated to these teachings of the Buddha. But we do do the refuges and precepts. The precepts is a practice of dedicating ourselves to non-harming and really understanding how non-harming, under, like not just understanding non-harming, but living a life that's grounded in non-harming, how directly that relates to this practice of mindfulness that we do. They're not two different practices. And the other that I'll begin with is this practice of taking refuge. It really makes a lot of sense that we'd want to ask the question, you know, just reflecting, and we can do it right now, do we as individuals, human beings, sensitive beings, are we in need of a refuge or not? So we just have a sense of our life and the kind of life we're living. Do we feel a need for a refuge, a place of safety? And if we do, you know, do we, have we discovered a refuge, a place of safety? And if we have, what is the nature of that refuge? So this is, it doesn't matter if you're Buddhist or even know the word Buddhism. This is a relevant question for human beings. Are we in need of a refuge? So this really is asking the question, now, have we noticed in life, in our life, in our lives, have we noticed how things continue to swirl, change, things come and go in our lives, and how deeply, fundamentally, we're not in control. We're not governing what's coming and going in my life. And that's disconcerting, you know, that I can't control my own mind, let alone my body, let alone the people around me or the society I live in. You know, we're part of this country, you know, that has acted out our cumulative fear by doing all kinds of things around the world over the last, over many decades. And uh, this is who we are. Whether you wanted to do it or not, cumulatively, this is what we're doing. This is how we are in the world. And even within our own mind, you know, we find ourselves doing things we know better. <laughs> we still do them, act them out. So whether we talk about this in terms of our country or our family or our, each of us as an individual, we find that in different ways we're being swept along by forces that are outside of what we would say, my control. And uh, sometimes the way that we're swept along, you know, it's problematic. It's troublesome. So we say, boy, it would be nice to be able to find some safety in this world where things keep happening beyond my control. It would be nice to have safety. And, of course, a lot of us seek safety in, you know, getting more in control. Or we seek safety by giving up, like forget it, I can't be in control. 
I can't be happy, so I'm not even going to try. That's also a way, that's, that's also an experimentation with refuge. Like, is there a refuge in not caring and giving up? Is there a refuge in trying harder to be in control? So we're exploring refuge. So I think it's fair to say that most of us, at least most of the time, have some, some sense that it would be nice to have a refuge, a place of safety. And then the relevant question is, well, where is that? And then this is the exploration part. Like, have we found a place of safety? What is safe? Is giving up safe? Does it lead to a resonant happiness? Does struggling lead to a resonant happiness? What leads to a resonant happiness? And what is the nature of that refuge that leads to a resonant, an unshakable release or happiness of the heart. The Buddha, now the fortunate thing is we have these teachings from this person who seem to understand quite a bit about the mind. And the interesting thing, even though that person lived a long time ago, 2,500 years ago, in a very particular culture, the depth of that person's understanding of their mind in a sense, transcended the particular cultural attributes. I mean, clearly there are differences within this room, within different cultures. But on a deeper level, the mind isn't that different. The patterns of the mind aren't that different. You know, the particular conditioning of my mind might be quite different than the particular conditioning of your mind. But the way my mind grasps, struggles, you know, pushes away what's unpleasant, holds on to what's pleasant, that pattern may be very similar. Like what I hold on to may be different than what you hold on to. What I push away may be different than what you push away. But the habit of pushing away what I see as unpleasant or the holding on to what I see as pleasant, that might be very similar among us, how we do that. So these teachings, the Buddha really points his finger for us to check out that if you're interested in a refuge, you need to look at the way the mind understands or relates to sense experience. So that the refuge isn't in money or having a lot of friends or having a lot of physical health, which all of these things you know, are nice. It's nice to have financial security. Nice to have trusted friends. It's nice to have a healthy body. But these things are limited. As nice as they are, they're limited. A real refuge, now this is just the Buddhist suggestion for us to check this out. The real refuge is transforming your relationship, the way the mind relates to sense experience. It doesn't matter what sense experience. This is an amazing thing. But to really get interested and how the mind relates, how it understands the role of sense experience is fundamental to understanding what's really a refuge. Now, let's just ask ourselves, how do we relate to sense experience? Well, I think it's true for most of us most of the time that our general relationship to sense experience is that It's the place we find happiness. Now, each of us right now, we're having a sense experience. And if we're not happy, it's because we haven't, we think, we haven't found the right sense experience. We just, if I could just have a different sense experience, like instead of having come to Comic-Con, if I had found a good movie on Netflix, you know, and had my popcorn or whatever, you know, I'd probably be happy. (laughs) Or whatever it might be for you. So, generally, when we think about sense experience, it's a place of danger, like ending up with the wrong sense experience, pain, or possibility of happiness. And the Buddha would call this wrong view. (laughs) It's like this idea that Sense experience, like what happens, what our actual experience that's showing up, that 
that will determine our happiness or unhappiness, that idea, that belief is not a refuge. It's a cause for suffering. Having that general relationship with sense experience that it's either going to cause me suffering or give me happiness is the wrong way to relate to sense experience. So that is so fundamental to just how we are. So what the Buddha is pointing to is a radical transformation to how we relate, how the mind relates to sense experience. So instead of sense experience being a place that can cause us suffering or lead to happiness, sense experience from the Buddhist point of view is a place to practice non-clinging. The purpose, the only, like as a refuge, we need to practice non-clinging to the painful sense experiences we bump into, the neutral, and the pleasant. So regardless of the kind of sense experience we're having in any moment, the practice remains the same. Don't bank on it. Don't let it be the cause for you thinking you're miserable, you're a miserable human being. Don't let it be the cause for thinking you're a happy human being. We set ourselves up over and over again because we, according to the Buddha, have a mistaken or inappropriate relationship to sense experience. And you can see, like, if we have that ordinary relationship to sense experience, then what comes out of it? If sense experience is going to determine whether I'm happy or unhappy, then it makes a lot of sense that we get greedy and fearful and aversive, right? Because this matters. You know, the, my health, my mood, how you're treating me, all these elements of my experience, my sense experience, all of a sudden matter. It's just sort of like that is the function of my happiness. These are the different determinants of my happiness. I better use greed and fear and aversion to get involved, to manipulate. So all the problems we see in the world, all the injustices, all the great inequities, all the justifications for violence and consumerism, greed, all of the messiness of the world arise out of this basic conclusion that sense experience determines happiness and unhappiness. I can justify being greedy. I was talking to somebody earlier today. You know, I I was saying that one of the, for me, you know, in my understanding, one of the expressions of having a privileged background is assuming that it's okay to have a lot of money in the bank. You know, whatever that means to you, a lot of money, or means to me. Like having more than what we need for the immediate future. For a rainy day, for retirement, or for whatever. I know this is, seems very appropriate. Like, well, of course I'm going to save, because who knows what will happen. And I do have to take care of myself when I'm older, and I don't have kids. And So yeah, I'm, I know there are a lot of rationalizations. But the being non-reflective about that, like just assuming that that's okay, like there are, that's a dependency of the mind. It's like a, we, it's an unconscious greed. Whether you're one who has the money in the bank, some money in the bank, or one who wants some money in the bank or wants to get rid of some debt, and again, it's not about like whether you should or you shouldn't, but we're, we're looking at the underlying causes for suffering. How the mind justifies craving and aversion. So when we have wrong view, then we can justify not only having a little bit of money, but it would be better if I had a little bit more money and a little bit more safety. You know, we, and all of a sudden, where does that end? Wanting to be safe by having money, by having health, by being away from things that I fear. There's no end to it. So 
as soon as the mind becomes dependent on sense experience, seeing it, seeing it as the cause for hell, suffering, seeing it as the cause for happiness, then that hunger to control, to grasp, to struggle with sense experience never ceases. That's our relationship to sense experience our whole life long. We're literally imprisoned by that idea that my happiness is a function of my sense experience. Because the mind being dependent on the particular sense experience sets in motion, justifies greed and aversion. And justifies also ignoring what seems to be neither something I want or something that I'm afraid of. So it justifies disconnection too. Now, from the Buddhist point of view, he'd say, well, you need to begin with right view. As best we can, you know, we begin with at least the idea, the being interested that happiness, freedom, the freedom from suffering, isn't about the sense experience. It's about relate, the particular sense experience. It's about relating to the sense experience here and now with non-attachment, non-grasping. So any, whatever experience is arising for us, like in this moment or in any moment of our lives, the practice isn't like trying to make that moment better or get rid of it if it's not a good moment, not a pleasant moment. But instead, it's about learning to relate to it with non-attachment. That that's actually the refuge. Now think about the different intentions that come out of right view versus wrong view. So when we have the view that it's all about my sense experience, which is the normal, ordinary human view of a sense experience, then naturally greed and fear and aversion come out of that basic view. So the active part of the mind, the intentional part of the mind that leads to action has often is often dominated by greed and aversion when we think that sense experience is what leads to happiness and unhappiness. If we have a different view that the role of sense experience is to learn to not be attached to it, to let it be, then what intentions come out of the mind? Well, one intention the Buddha points out, and this is what he would call, he defines this in, the, in his description of the spiritual path, in the Eightfold Path, he describes the second part. The first part is right view that I've been talking about. The second part is called right intention or right thought or right resolve. And he defines it as <clears throat> thoughts of renunciation, thoughts of goodwill or non-ill will, and thoughts of harmlessness or compassion. So when we have this, like the relationship with sense experience, that sense experience isn't a cause for happiness or unhappiness, sense experience is the ground, is the place of non-clinging. The purpose of having an experience is to, in that moment, realize non-clinging, non-attachment to the experience that's arising for us. And then out of that proper or wholesome view, like way of relating to experience, come the active part of the mind, like the intention to let go, to be generous, to be content, to be simple. Not simple like ignorant, but simple like not needing things to be other than they are. That's one of the intentions that flow. And you can just imagine like the actions, the way you might be in different situations with that intention of renunciation or the intention of letting go, the intention to be generous, the, the intention to be content with what you have. Then so the other two intentions, the intention of goodwill. Right? Like we see that everybody wants to be happy. <clears throat> we see that most people most of the time are seeking happiness in experience by struggling to get what they like and get rid of what they don't like. We see that, and naturally it moves the heart, right? The heart that understands the point of experience is to not attach, is to be free of clinging. And we see clinging, 
in ourselves and in other, others, and we're moved with compassion. Oh, I know what that feels like to struggle, to hate, to crave. And when we see people in a moment of non-grasping, we appreciate that because we, we understand like, I know the release of non-grasping. I know what it's like to be content, not to need things to be other than they are. So right view, the proper way of relating to this sense experience, leads to right action through this intermediary of right intention. From view comes an intention or a volition or a thought or a resolve in the mind, right? So we have a particular way of relating, wisely or not wisely, and then out of that particular way of relating to this experience comes motivation, a motivating force that we call intention. Is it, are the intentions that you're seeing in your mind now intentions of renunciation and kindness and compassion? Or are they intentions of greediness, wanting something? I want to be a good meditator. I want to be enlightened. I want to be seen as a cool person who practices Buddhism. Or whatever it might be. You know, a spiritual person that people will sort of think is spiritual. Or I want to get rid of these evil tendencies of my mind that I'm so embarrassed about. I would never want anybody to know about, so that's why I'm here. To get rid of those evil tendencies, those disgusting, bad tendencies that I got from my parents. (laughs) (laughs) Or wherever, you know. So... You know, this is something we can study in any moment. We can have some, like, discern to some degree what is the basic view of the mind. Is the mind acting out a view that my experience is going to give me happiness or cause me to be unhappy? Or are we relating to our experience as a place to practice non-attachment, non-clinging? And then what maybe easier to notice the kinds of intentions in the mind. But even more obvious are the actions coming out of intentions. So from view come intentions, from intentions come action. So what we say, what we think, what we do. Are we acting out greediness, craving? Are we acting out fear or aversion, hatred? Are we acting out renunciation, kindness, compassion? So we can just look at how we are in the world. And it doesn't even have to be some interaction with another human being, but just like how are you relating to your body right now? Is it with renunciation, compassion, and kindness? Or craving, hatred, delusion, you know, disconnection? What is the relationship to the body? What is the relationship to being here now? The Buddha, he talks about this level of action. This is what we, you know, I mentioned we took the refuges and precepts this morning. Well, the precepts are different ways of talking about non-harming. I'll just go through them in case you don't know them. We, when we do the precepts, it's a way of sort of placing this life on this path of awakening that the Buddha taught. And we undertake, we consciously undertake the training to refrain from harming living beings. It's a training. It's actually, I don't think, possible to not harm other living beings while being alive. It's just not possible. But we can train. It's a beautiful training. Even if we never fully succeed in living in a way that doesn't harm other living beings, I don't care if you're a vegan. Even being a vegan means you're participating in the harm of beings, plowing fields, You're causing a lot of harm when you plow, when you're participating in just normal farming methods, let alone, you know, animal agriculture, raising of animals that are slaughtered and then eaten. So there's no way to avoid harming, but we can train 
It's a beautiful training to commit to non-harming. It's a beautiful training to commit to not taking things that aren't given. Where is the end of that? You know, like, what is? what does that mean is freely given? The receiving what comes my way. And what is actually stealing? You know, and that really, you know, that means we have to maybe be responsible to think and reflect about where we're getting things. And are those people who are part of making this thing come to me, are they being treated fairly or not? And am I participating in stealing, taking advantage of people? I undertake the training to refrain from causing harm through sexual activity. You know, what does that mean? How we, you know, it's not actually, I don't think, possible for us, at least most of the time, it's not really appropriate for us to be asexual. Most of us, most of the time, are sexual beings. There is sexual energy moving. That's not a problem. That's just the way that it is. So the question is, how to be a sexual being without harming others? What does that look like? Where is the end of that reflection or exploration? Right? Because there's always little and often big ways that we cause harm through our sexual activity. Someone once told me, well, that may be true when you're young, but when you're old, that's not the case. But I'm not so, so sure that's, that's true. Because our sexual energy gets expressed in all kinds of ways, often to power dynamics. And, you know, it's very easy to cause harm through different power dynamics. And maybe that's related for a, a lot of us a lot of the time, uh, related to our sexual energy. And the fourth is I undertake the training to refrain from false speech or causing harm through the words we speak. Or you should consider, we should consider words we don't speak because we can cause harm by not saying what needs to be said just as much as causing harm by saying things that maybe shouldn't be said or shouldn't be said in that way or shouldn't be said at that time. And then the last of the five precepts for lay people is I undertake the training to refrain from intoxicating the mind in ways that lead to carelessness. It's not that intoxicating the mind is inherently a cause for harm, but it probably increases the probability of harm when the mind is intoxicated. It's just more likely in that intoxicated state, more likely to be careless and cause herself or others harm. So we want to see these five precepts connected to the deeper practice of understanding the mind and the refuge. Like, what is our refuge? Is our refuge in sense experience? Where it's really hard to practice non-harming when we think sense experience is what's going to provide happiness or give us unhappiness. Because the ways that we harm each other almost always have to do with us trying to get a sense experience that will make us happy or get rid of a sense experience that we are afraid is going to make us unhappy. Like in terms of sexual activity, you know, it's like, I think this sexual activity is going to make me happy, so we don't care so much what it's going to be like for this other person. You know, we can do this thing where this person has this expectation, but we just want this nice experience because we think it's going to make us happy. I don't know, just think about how much harm has been caused because of that simple attitude. Easy to justify. Same with our words, you know. I just need to say this. But you know, we don't have that luxury because as soon as we say something, we're setting something in motion for ourselves and for many other people. So we have to be aware of that, whether we like it or not. And if we think, well, this will be make me happy to get this off my chest, well, probably that happiness will be relatively temporary. You know, whatever relief we get, but what we set in motion 
Who knows what the reverberations of that will be? I bet there's nobody in this room who hasn't said something that has had very long-term reverberations. Like, is there anybody in this room who can't remember a conversation that still hurts that happened more than 10 years ago? Now, isn't that amazing? That something that was said 10 years ago still has a charge for us and probably other people. And maybe some of you in this room 60 years. So words really uh, matter. And to really see how our words, our thoughts, our actions in the world, in terms of harming or non-harming, they inevitably flow out of view. So like if we understand how important it is our actions are in the world, it's not enough to just work on the level, okay, I'm going to just restrain myself from doing things that cause harm because we're not going to be very successful. We have to trace back, well, where do my words come from? Where do my actions and thoughts come from? And we see, well, they come from intentions in the mind. Well, where do those intentions come from? Well, they come from the basic view in the mind. So all this work we do in Buddhist mindfulness practice to develop the great balance and steadiness of mindful awareness, you know, we're really, you know, a lot of us, you know, we're putting an hour, even more, some of us more than an hour a day, formally training the mind. And then hopefully remembering to train throughout the day more than just the formal meditation time we're training the mind to be mindful, to be steady, to be balanced, to be able to see clearly the way it is so that we have a little chance to notice the view that's operating, to notice the intentions that are coming out of that view, to notice the actions, the thoughts, the words that are coming out of those intentions, to really see what's getting set in motion. This is what we mean by karma. It's not just hitting somebody that has consequences, but just intentions, and even more potently, our view has karmic consequences. We're contributing all of the violence, all the injustice in the world. It's not just the people running the corporations, running the armies, making the decisions of people with power. Anybody operating with the view where the mind is dependent on sense experience for happiness, we're all contributing to the suffering in the world. Because some people might have more political power, military power, or this or that kind of power, And so their words, their actions, their thoughts might pack a bigger punch, but we're all contributing to the ignorance that having the right sense experience, you know, having the Crimea within my boundaries will make me happy, will make me feel safe, or, you know, getting rid of these kinds of people who think in these kinds of ways will make me feel safe. Going in and justifying any kind of action to get rid of other countries that have weapons of mass destruction because they threaten the stability. So we're willing to threaten the stability of the world in order to protect the stability of the world. I mean, this is the kind of... This is not just happening out there. It's happening right here. I do this all the time, every day, several times. I, in order to be happy, right, that's the equivalent of like, in order to have a stable, safe world, you know, in order for me to be happy, I do things that cause my unhappiness and probably cause, contribute to other people's unhappiness. It's a great tragedy, what we do, to be happy, that leads to our unhappiness. Because we don't understand that the experiences we have in life, 
They're not designed to make us happy. That's the big mistake. It really comes out of wrong view. We think that me, as a separate entity here, me, needs a sense experience in order to be safe or happy, in order to be secure. But you see what a setup that is, like how, even from an intellectual point of view, how erroneous it is to think that life, in terms of experiences, that that's what the purpose of experience is, is to make this so-called entity, me, feel safe. That's not what nature is here for, to make somebody who thinks themselves to be me safe. Nature is just nature. It isn't here for that purpose. But isn't that how we treat it? We treat the life, which is just a series of experiences, right? As if it's here to make me happy. But it isn't here to make us happy. It's just here because of unfolding causes and conditions. So from a spiritual point of view, the practice isn't to try to extract happiness from sense experience but to realize a happiness of not grasping, not struggling with sense experience. Freedom with sense experience, not happiness because of a sense experience. But we have to appreciate what a radical turning this is. This is a complete paradigm shift from how we've been conditioned to relate to sense experience. But there will be no uh, sort of development of ethical conduct without working with this more subtle level of view. It's not enough to want to be nice, to want to be kind, to want to be free from harming other living beings. We have to be willing to do the very subtle work at seeing, like, where does my greed and anger come from? Oh, this view. And you can't even do that unless there's the mind is steady. The mind has to be really steady and clear and balanced to begin to see that my, me acting out in these different ways with greed and aversion and fear and hatred and controlling and impatience and all of that is arising out of these intentions which are arising out of wrong view. There being a sense of me trying to be happy through the manipulation of sense experience, getting the right sense experiences. And it's this endlessness, like always looking there. And each time we fail to get the happiness we seek, we always think, well, next time. I just didn't get the right sense experience. So I'll try again to make Monday the day that will make me happy. And the only difference in this game that most of us play most of the time is some people have a longer sort of, uh, you know, some people, like their idea of being happy is I need it right now. So they're willing to do anything to be happy right now. Like, there's no delayed gratification. So they see something like, that's a nice green water bottle. You know, hey, look over there. And you just take it because it's like, I want to be happy now. And other people see, oh, that's a nice green water bottle. What can I do to earn the money to get it? But there were both, both of those people are playing in this world of like, I'll be happy if I get this. Clearly in this world, even in this relative world of thinking I'll be happy if I get something, there are better and worse ways to play that game. So people who are playing the long game, who can delay the gratification, you know, work their butt off, get the ducks in a row, you know, find the right people to hang out with, take care of their body, you know, they might, more disciplined people, what we'd call disciplined people, you know, they might extract more happiness than people who immediately take what they want because they want to be happy. Those people tend to end up in jail or end up with no friends because nobody trusts them. 
and they have a lot of they have more misery. But <clears throat> we don't want to just be playing in this world of getting better at getting what we want and getting rid of what we don't want. We want to see that that world is inherently limited. We still have to play in that world because that's where we're, we are. We still believe this most of the time that our sense experiences matter. Even people who've been practicing for a long time have some delusion or some... <clears throat> Um, attachment to sense experience, thinking that it will, it matters. Here's an old, actually comes out of the yogic tradition, where, uh, you know, uh, these people were following this guru, this great yogi, and uh, people were really uh, appreciative, and so they would uh, give whatever they had to this great teacher, and let's say she would just receive their gifts and just consume it as a way of showing her appreciation. So if they gave her food, she'd eat food. If they gave the, her wine, she'd drink wine. And her students saw this and said, oh, she drinks wine, I'll drink wine. You know. And eventually the teacher saw that the students were kind of, they were in a different place. Like they really wanted the wine. She wasn't attached. She just received whatever was given to her. So she... As the story goes, you know, she went to a blacksmith and had the molten metal and drank that <laughs> to see if her suits would drink that. So this is the thing about non-attachment. You know, it's like uh, non-attachment to sense experience doesn't mean that we have to be afraid of sense experience. But one, how are we going to find out whether we're attached if we don't play with letting go, you know? Like you may say, oh, I'm not attached to like food. Well, just see the skip, you know, just eat one meal a day for a while so that you don't starve, you know, and just see if having one meal a day, you might notice, oh, yeah, I'm really attached to food. Not food to sustain the health of my body, but food as entertainment that leads, like I think it's going to make me happy having something delicious. We do that. We think we'll make in the same way we think certain entertainments will make us happy in a lasting way. But has it ever? How many interesting entertainments have we had in our life? Funny things we've seen. But it never leads to satisfaction. It's just a, a temporary pleasant experience that then ends very shortly. Over and over. So we have to explore this world of renunciation. The whole path really is about renunciation. Ultimately, all we're renouncing is wrong view. But in order to get clear about renouncing wrong view, we need to play on the level of actions and thoughts and words we speak. We have to experiment about our relationship to our experiences in life. It's just so much easier like even like in meditation practice where we sit still for 30 minutes or 45 minutes or however long you sit, that's a huge renunciation to not move the body, at least not much, for that period of time. It's, it's profound. It takes people some time, most people some time before they could sit for 30 minutes still in a relaxed way. Let alone, I mean, I'm not even talking about stillness in the mind. The mind may be all over the place. I'm just talking about keeping the body still for 30 minutes is a big step of renunciation. Or letting go, you know, of, uh, you know, one of the interesting things about getting a little older, I'm 55, soon to be 56, a couple weeks, is like uh, you realize, well, there's no way I'm going to get that done in this life. You know, it's like so many things just leave the event horizon. It's like, you know, the odds of that, me doing that is so small now. And and just like it gets narrower and narrower. And it's just like, okay, what can I get done? I got about, you know, this many years left before I'm exhausted. You know, (laughs) what can I get done? And like, and it's just maintaining, you know, like, So that's a huge renunciation. Just getting old 
and seeing the limitations of your energy <clears throat> and just seeing the, the natural appropriate trajectory of the body, aging and birth, growing up, aging, weaker, more limited, eyes begin to fade, and just seeing that natural and just owning it, like really getting right in the middle of it, not seeing it as a problem. How could that be a problem? It's just like as much of nature as anything is. So renunciation is just built into life and to be in like not aware and not really uh, actively, intentionally integrating and uh, coming into allegiance with renunciation, with letting go, means you know we're setting emotion suffering for ourselves. So I'll leave it here. We have about 10 minutes left. It would be nice to hear from people. This whole path from right view, right intention, right action, what you've learned in your life, questions you have about the talk tonight, obstacles you've experienced in your life. What comes to mind? Yeah, Mason. I think I experienced this primarily as a low-level anxiety that goes on in the moment I wake up through more of the planning of the day's events. And the first time it really kind of hit me was when a teacher gave me an instruction, or gave a group of us an instruction, to, before we go about our days, you know, sit up on our beds, sit down, and just sit there for like 30, 40 seconds, kind of feel what you're feeling. And then that turns into like, before you get in your car, just sit at your car. And just sit there for like 30 seconds for a minute and just see how it feels. Even though it's what the mind's like, everybody else is going to be feeling really weird just staring at the space, just sitting in the car. Just see how it feels. And uh, I know the bike this. I was biking to work one day and I was rushing because I didn't get up early enough. And I got caught behind a cop car so I could see through all the red lights like I normally do. And then the cop car kept taking every single turn that I had to take to get to work, and I just had to realize this really strong neurotic behavior of like, you know, oh, maybe my knees won't get met, maybe I'll get tired when I get to work, maybe this, this, and that, maybe they'll pull me over, or, you know, biking weird or something. <laughs> <laughs> There's a law against biking weird? <laughs> <laughs> but, uh, yeah, it's, it's through, through what you're talking about, the cultivation of renunciation really brings out a sense of uh, stability and clarity and strength of the mind to really focus in on um, not getting too caught up in the ways. Yeah. And what you said, Mason, is really important because I said I mentioned how our actions are more concrete, easier to see, intentions are more subtle, the view in the mind is even more subtle. It's not easy. We really need to have insight at the level of view. So you could say this whole practice of mindfulness is a purification of view. We talk about that in the Buddhist tradition, the purification of view. There's purification of action, how we relate to each other, purification of intention, like just purification of mind. But the most subtle transformation is the purification of view. And one of the ways that this, uh, Mason mentioned this, this thread that can help the mind become subtle enough to, to do that purification of view. Because, first of all, what is it that purifies view? Seeing it as it is. It's the seeing it clearly that purifies it. It's not that you've got to go in there and fix the view. You just need to see it. And what helps you see it? It's this thing that Mason mentioned, this underlying dukkha is the word we use. He called it anxiety. It's a good word for it. This underlying uneasiness of the heart that's there if you're willing to check on it, just like he said. All day long in your meditation period, but all day long just checking how it feels. What is the underlying feeling tone? The underlying uneasiness. Because what that uneasiness is, it's like uh, some of you know this. Back, I think in the 70s, they have these big radio antennas in New Jersey and other places too. And they, they pick up the background radiation of the universe. And they thought it was bird poop because they, were, they kept there was just some vibration that they were, these big radio telescopes were picking up. But it turned out it was the background vibration of the Big Bang. That's at least the theory. And it's a little bit the same way. Like as we go about developing our sensitivity, our mindfulness, 
we become more sensitive to this background uneasiness of the heart. So some of you know the Four Noble Truths. It's a teaching about waking up to dukkha, this underlying uneasiness. There's obvious dukkha, obvious stress and pain in life. It's good to see that too. But we really want to tune into this underlying uneasiness because it, it's like a thread that will bring us right to the underlying view in the mind. Oh, this uneasiness is directly correlating, directly relating to this, the mind, this view in the mind of uh, its attachment to sense experience, its dependency on sense experience, its hunger for sense experience. That is synonymous with that uneasy or anxious feeling that we find subtly everywhere. Even when you're happy, you'll find it. That's the interesting thing about that underlying anxiety. It's not just there when you're having a bad day. If you look, if you're sensitive enough, you'll see it there even when you're having a good moment. That's the surprising thing. But you have to be very honest to admit it. That comes with mindfulness. Mindfulness is a non-judging awareness. It sees things as it is. That's what we mean by mindful awareness. It's not distorted. It's honest. It sees, okay, if it's anxiety, I'm not going to pretend it's not there. The heart's anxious. It's uneasy. Even though there's no good reason, it's there. So there must be a cause, because in this universe, nothing just happens. It always has an underlying lawful cause. So what is it? And you'll trace back. You'll find that view. The mind's dependence, the mind's attachment, or what we call clinging or grasping. The mind's grasping. The Buddha said the whole path is the re- about the realization of the liberation of non-grasping, the liberation of non-clinging. That's what the mind wakes up to, this possibility of not grasping sense experience, not being hungry for sense experience, but just letting things be. Other thoughts that come to mind? Yeah, say your name again. I forgot. Justin? Yeah, I was just thinking lately... Wouldn't it happen on its own? Like, what would stop you from doing this, 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 this? You know, it's like, this is the interesting thing. You know, like, let's just say something like driving. You know, you got to drive home in a few minutes or ride your bike home or walk home. And uh, we could turn it into this, I could have this idea like what a burden it is that I got to get myself home. I got to deal with the cold weather i got to deal with turning right and turning left or putting one foot in front of the next or unlocking the bike and locking it back up and getting and pedaling. And we could make it this big drama about the cold and about this and about the that and I'm wearing out the car and what happens if somebody hits me? And Or we could just have the view like I'm not going to drive home. Let's say you have a car. I'm not going to drive home, but I'm also not going to not drive home. I'm going to see, like, what's going to happen. So the bell ends, you know, ends the session, and we do announcements, and you notice people getting up, and you might just find yourself getting up, you know, and you might just find naturally that the organicness of the mind-body gets itself to the entranceway and recognizes the shoes and puts them on. Now, why do we need the story that I have to do this? And the, the attachment to the story, the identification. Same thing with the noxious things we have to do at work, you know, the writing the email, the looking at this, the having to have the conversation with this person. Maybe those things can happen without creating the burden of a me that has to do them. But we have to put down, like we have to make peace with the idea of it not happening. So like tomorrow morning, you wake up, 
and, and naturally the to-do list is there, expressing itself in your mind. Oh yeah, I get Oh, don't forget that. And then, and then you bring in you bring in sort of an appropriate reflection. Okay, today is going to unfold. There's no way for today not to unfold, and it either will be a great tragedy or be a great success or somewhere in between. And I'm going to make peace with it all. So if it's a great tragedy. It's just going to be what it's going to be, and as best I can, I'm going to release into that and just uh, be as skillful as I can if that terrible scenario unfolds. Or if it's a great success, I'm going to be really released and relaxed with that. If that's what unfolds. So we make peace with the full spectrum of what might happen, assuming that there's things that could happen that we can't even think about. I make peace with that too. You know, if an asteroid falls and or whatever, it's... A, you know, I'll just deal with whatever comes my way. And then, yeah. And if fear comes, that's part of what comes. Okay, fears come. Okay, that's how it is now. So I'll make peace with that. So maybe there's room in this life right now for there to be anxiety or fear or dependency or need. So we're not demanding that we be enlightened or look like we're enlightened, or free, or not attached. So when, not atta- when attachment arises, we practice including that too, like not being attached to the attachment, the fear that's arising. Well, that too, okay. But it's a practice. Yeah. So, so look at what you're afraid of and see if you can include that. Like Maybe you're afraid of being a lazy slug on the couch, right? Yeah, so so see that like your mind already has an idea of where that might lead, you know. So see that picture, and say, yeah, this life could go to hell, and clearly, part of the condition of the mind does not want it to go to hell, and that's an active force in the mind, but it still might go to hell, and I have to be okay with that because, you know, being afraid of that actually doesn't keep it from happening. Just being aware that that's a possibility keeps present the condition of the mind that doesn't want that to happen. And that's not even you. Like not wanting that to happen is just a conditioned force in the mind. We don't need to personalize it. It's like, you know, whenever you're walking near a cliff or someplace where you feel exposed, you don't have to try to be concerned about falling off. The concern is there naturally. It's naturally there. So this is the thing about life. We think we have to be afraid of making mistakes in order to avoid making mistakes, like not doing the work that needs to be done. But it's all there. It's, it's part of the conditioning of the mind. So we just practice including it all. It has to be real quick, Dan. Uh, what I like about this work is just watching the breathing. Because I could really get totally, like, right, you wrong, really stuck in my brain about, and just feel overlaid. So the beauty of it for me is if you just watch your breathing, you naturally let go. You naturally, the world starts to change. You naturally start to receive. And it just seems natural. So I feel much anxiety tonight from all this, like, stuff. I'm like, did I do that? Did I not do this? Anyway. This, I don't know. It, it's just one step at a time. I don't know. No, no. There's some real wisdom in that because when we're just doing one thing completely, we have to put down wrong view. Because what does wrong view require? Being obsessive about sense experience and wanting the right sense experience and not the wrong sense experience. So when we're really willing to invest in a breath, in a step, in washing the dishes, we're entering right view. But we have to. But later, you have to understand why that's right view. In, in in the short term, you can just experience the benefit of falling into right view, because you've put down wrong view. But in order to generalize what right view is, you need to understand what you've put down. Because then you don't need to be present with your breath in order to have right view. Any moment, you could be taking care of a screaming baby and have right view. 
but we have to leave it here. We're a couple minutes over. So we'll just take a few seconds, just enough time to take a breath together. Appreciate these wise teachings from the Buddha and all of our ancestors who did their practice in their busy lives, just like we have a busy life, realized some real wisdom from their practice and then shared it one generation after another. Now it's our turn. So may we realize real wisdom, love, be causes for peace in the world, in our hearts. So may this be so. This talk, like all programs at Common Ground, is offered freely in the spirit of generosity. To learn more about Common Ground and its programs, or if you would like to donate, please visit our website, www.commongroundmeditation.org.